0: Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto, the car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. AutoTrader. Hey everybody, it's me, Josh. And for this week's SYSK selects I've chosen how the Black Panther Party worked, and I think you probably know why I did. I know a lot of people listen to Stuff You Should Know as an escape from the rest of the world, from the terribleness of news and politics and all of that stuff. And we get that, and we're actually grateful that we can provide that kind of distraction for people under normal circumstances. But these aren't normal circumstances, and right now is not a time to be distracted, and it's definitely not a time to be silent. And so I hope that you will listen to this episode about the history of the struggle for civil rights and human rights that black people in America have had to undertake, and that it helps you understand better the struggle that's going on in America right now. And I know that a lot of people who listen to Stuff You Should Know don't necessarily agree with us politically. That's fine. We get that. That's wonderful too. But we don't have to agree politically to agree that human rights matter for everybody. And right now, every single one of us, every single one of you listening to my voice right this moment has a once in a lifetime opportunity to do something about it, to stand up, and to use your voice to help other people be treated equally and make this country a better place. You can't argue with that. More people having more human rights can only make America a better place. Just being a Stuff You Should Know listener means that you love to learn. Well, now is a really, really good time to learn about what life has been like all of these years for people of color in America. And I hope you will. I hope you'll open your hearts and your minds to all the people who are trying to teach us right now. Thanks for listening. And thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. It's just the two of us. No producer today.
1: We're producer free. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try. <laughs> and Let's try, Chuck. You and I. Right. Uh, I think we're both pretty excited about this one. Yeah, this this is going to be a good one. I love my history, as do you. Sure, especially contemporary history. And especially history... That I didn't get taught in high school. Yeah,
0: I don't remember learning much about the Black Panthers. No, in high school, none. So Charles, yes. uh, you didn't know much about the Black Panthers. I didn't either. A little bit. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would guess we were probably in about the same, the same boat. You know, I went to college yeah i don't recall learning much in college about them either but i i guess i mean i knew a little bit here there's some of the highlights but it was it was in researching that i realized like just how much if you if you don't actually go research it just how how completely wrong a lot of this stuff is and not just in detail but in like overall tone uh, sure. you know like you get the idea that um the Black Panthers were um, nothing but like racist terrorists who basically wanted to kill all whites and uh, take over the white House not true, no no not really and and <clears throat> after further digging, it turns out that a lot of that image that that most people have today who don't really know much about the Black panthers um, that idea comes from a misinformation and smear campaign carried out very purposefully by the FBI back in the 60s and 70s
1: yes by uh boy I mean let's just call him divisive at, yeah. at the risk of uh, smearing someone mm-hmm. but uh, has there ever been a more divisive individual in this country perhaps well who knows now but uh, J Edgar Hoover yeah I mean my god FBI director for life Whew. I don't I mean I want to say we should do a podcast on him but would definitely be a two parter because he worked for 187 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that we I should say
0: that smear campaign, and there was a lot of other stuff to that campaign as well, beyond just smearing. Um, but it had a name, Cointel Pro, uh, counterintelligence program. Yeah, and um, that in and of itself deserves its own one or two parter episode, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, at one point, J. Edgar Hoover came out in the news and said that the Black Panther Party was the single greatest threat. To the United States of America right and this was during the Vietnam War uh, I mean it, it for the uninformed uh, like you said people you know thought all right well and, and it was not coincidentally from that point forward is when the cops really were like all right we can we truly don't have to even respect civil liberties uh, liberties at this point right we can go in and shoot people in their sleep right exactly
0: and what's crazy, Chuck, is when he said that, it was less than three years after the the Black Panther Party was formed. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning, actually. We'll go back before even um, the founding of the Black Panthers, just to provide some context, right? Yes. So this is the roughly the um, tail end of the Jim Crow era, right? Right before, right at the New Deal era. And um, if you were black in America, your experience whether it was in the South, where it was just even more openly and overtly hostile, um, or in the the cities of the North, you were probably, um, just statistically speaking, it was likely that you were poor, that you um, probably had routine, especially if you were a black man, um, especially a black man under a certain age, that you were routinely mistreated, harassed, beaten or possibly murdered by police, um, and there was a, a tremendous
1: amount of racial tension as a result, right? Yeah, not just up north. I mean, we're talking pretty much any major city.
0: Right, And uh, as, but especially in the south. In the south, uh, actually, there was a guy whose name was Robert Williams, and he was a NAACP leader in North Carolina, and he wrote a book back in, I think, 1965, and he called it Negroes with guns. And it advocated blacks arming themselves and carrying out violence in self-defense uh, in the face of this um, racial mistreatment, right? Yeah. And it, it, he, Williams actually kind of codified or enshrined into a book form this idea that was pretty predominant among Southern blacks. It was like, look, this, this, is, it, this stuff is real, And we need to defend ourselves. Yeah. And that idea spread a little bit to the cities here or there. And um, it it germinated in the minds of a couple of guys, a couple of college kids in Oakland named Bobby Seale and um, Huey Newton.
1: Yes. uh, And they officially formed, it was uh, called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Initially, it was eventually truncated uh, in Oakland in 1966. And they're... We'll, well, you know, we'll go through there, because uh, they had, boy, sort of a roller coaster ride of as far as what they did as a group and as a party. But um, initially, kind of the whole thing was self-defense. We need to defend ourselves against police brutality. Right. And this nonviolent civil rights movement is is great. We love Martin Luther King Jr. and what he's doing, <clears throat> but it's going too slowly. And in the meantime, we're getting beaten and killed in the streets by law enforcement. So uh, we need to do something. We need to be proactive and do something about that.
0: Right, exactly. And Robert Williams may have written the book, but that the the, the, uh, the guys who formed the Black Panther's seal in Newton, they weren't the first um, black rights group to advocate militancy. Although, again, you have to point out, like they advocated um, violence and self-defense, not
1: uh, aggression, right? Yeah, which is why they specifically chose um, the Black Panther as their uh, I guess you'd say mascot, but as their name, <laughs> mascot makes it sound like a, a baseball game or something. Right. But uh, there's a quote here from uh, Bobby Seal, co-founder, and he said that Huey Newton said, you know, the nature of a panther, I looked it up. If you push it into a corner, that panther is going to try and move left or right to get you to get out of the way. But if you keep pushing back into that corner sooner or later, that panther is going to come out of that corner and try and wipe out who keeps oppressing in that corner and that was sort of the idea like hey listen we're we're trying to sidestep we're trying to do the right thing but if you keep coming at us then we're going to defend ourselves yeah exactly and and again they they weren't the first people to come up with this and they looked around
0: and kind of surveyed the black rights movements that were around there were um and they kind of said this one works a little bit but um that part of it doesn't work or this this one we we don't agree with but it's a nice sentiment. Like the MLK nonviolent um, civil rights movement, They, like you said, they said this isn't working. It's not happening fast enough or it's not happening at all. Um, and some other groups and people like Stokely Carmichael and H. Rat Brown, uh-huh. who were the heads of the nonviolent student coordinating committee, were some of the first black leaders to to publicly break with MLK's nonviolent theory and say, no, we need to to meet violence with violence. Um, Malcolm X was another one. And Malcolm X probably had the biggest influence on the Black Panther ideology than anybody else. Yeah. He advocated black militancy <clears throat> that included violence. He advocated um, black self-sufficiency and dignity, uh, but he didn't necessarily say um, you you were only going to advance with the helps of other blacks. We need to exclude whites or other um, races from our struggle. And the, the Black Panthers, specifically Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, uh, really identified with that. And that was actually, that became one of the hallmarks of the Black Panthers, that they were willing to work with other like-minded groups regardless of race. Oh, yeah. So that's a, that was kind of a big one that I wasn't aware of that I learned from this. Um, and then the uh, the other aspect of Malcolm X that really formed like one of the foundation keystones of the Black Panther ideology is that it, it wasn't race that was the problem. It was um, class. They were basically avowed Marxists, right? That yeah, the, the central the, the central issue uh, that created the struggle um, was, was class was capitalism and that the white establishment and the police and the government were keepers of the capitalist structure. And that same capitalist structure was keeping the black, the black people in America down. And so to get to, to rise up to become self-sufficient, to get that chance that they needed to grow and advance themselves, they had to get rid of the capitalist structure itself.
1: Yeah, they were very much into the socialist ideal and, um, one of the first things they did was they they realized they needed sort of a an a foundation on mm-hmm. which to build upon mm-hmm. something easily digestible that people could could look at and could read and understand what they 're all about so very smartly early on, they came up with a very specific uh, what they called their ten point program uh what we want and what we believe and uh, they wrote this out we 're going to read them in a second, but they wrote them out and then immediately printed them on a thousand sheets of paper and, uh, set up an office and started passing these things around. This office was in uh, Oakland, uh, which is where, you know, I think we already said where they founded Uh huh. and, um, you know, they basically quit their jobs. Every member of the black Panther party was a full-time, uh, I guess you could say employee, but full-time worker member. Yeah. Member. Yeah. And, um, they gathered their paychecks, the few guys at the very beginning, and rented an old shop uh, storefront base and started handing out this 10-point program. Yeah,
0: they did. And would um, you want to go over the program
1: first? Yeah, we might as well just go ahead and read all 10 uh, so everybody knows what we're talking about. Right. Uh, number one, uh, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. We believe that black people will not be free until we are able to determine our destiny.
0: Yep. Uh, number two, we want full employment for our people. We believe that the federal government is responsible and obligated to give every man employment or a guaranteed income. We believe that if the white American businessmen will not give full employment, then the means of production should be taken from the businessmen and placed in the community so that the people of the community can organize and employ all of its people and give it a high standard of living.
1: Uh, Number three, we want an end to the robbery by the white man of our black community. Uh, We believe that this racist government has robbed us, and now we are demanding uh, the overdue debt of 40 acres and two mules. Number four, we
0: want decent housing fit for shelter of human beings. We believe that if white landlords will not give decent housing to our black community, then the housing and the land should be made into cooperatives so that our community, with government aid, can build and make decent housing for its people.
1: Yeah, and this... uh, that was a big one, and, and as you'll see, a lot of what they were after was just, like, the ability to live in a neighborhood where you could have a decent school and a decent place to live and a chance at work. Like, it wasn't <laughs> some radical thing that they were after. You know, they just wanted the same opportunities, basically.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I said earlier that if if you were living I and mean, you were black and living in America in the 60s, the chances are you were poor. 32% of all black people all black people in the United States were living below the poverty line in 1966. Wow. 71% of the poor living in metropolitan areas were black. And in 1968, two thirds of the black population lived in ghettos. Wow. So yeah, like, of course it makes sense that their agenda is we want to just get to, get to basic normal and then we'll go
1: from there. Uh, All right. Number five, uh, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of, of this decadent American society we want education that teaches us our true history and our role in present-day society
0: yeah, uh, number six we want all black men to be exempt from military service this is a big one we believe that black people should not be forced to fight in the military service to defend a racist government that does not protect us we will not fight and kill other people of color in the world who like black people are being victimized by the white racist government of America
1: yeah, and you know, later on in their uh during the Vietnam War they actually uh some of them traveled to Vietnam and um kind of found a common ground with the North Vietnamese. Right. So it's very interesting. Uh is it my turn? It is. Uh number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Uh it pretty much speaks for itself.
0: Yeah. Um But part of that was that they uh, they they point out that the Second Amendment to the Constitution uh, guaranteed the right to bear arms. And that's going to be a big, big part of the Black Panther Party. They were they're credited historically as being basically the ones who pointed to the Second Amendment and said, hey, we we're advocates of
1: gun rights. Yeah, we'll get to all that. It gets pretty juicy.
0: Number eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county and city prisons and jails. It says that they believe that all black people should be released from uh, prison because they have not received a fair and impartial trial.
1: Uh, Number nine, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States.
0: Number 10, we want land, bread, housing, education, clothing, justice, and peace. And as our major political objective, a United Nations supervised plebiscite to be held throughout the black colony in which only black colonial subjects will be allowed to participate for the purpose of determining the will of black people as to their national destiny. They're basically saying we believe that blacks should uh, have the power to separate from the United States from the white establishment and form their own self-sufficient and um respected
1: self-governing body basically right so they took these uh ten, this 10-point ten program they founded a newspaper uh called the Black Panther and they sold that for 25 cents mm-hmm. uh it got to be a very popular newspaper yeah. um it had a really wide circulation and it wasn't just uh you know black communities it, there were there were all kinds of people reading this a newspaper and it kind of aside from donations and stuff from various groups it really kind of funded the organization was the sale of this paper All right and every single issue i believe featured this 10 point program on the inside cover mm-hmm. and uh quick shout out to the artwork of emery douglas uh, if you 've ever I, I saw this great documentary called the Black Panther's Vanguard of a Revolution yeah, I watched that too and this artwork uh from uh, this you know artist and graphic designer Emery Douglas, that was kind of the hallmark of the paper was just gorgeous stuff mm-hmm. and um I think he 's one of those that has sort of not been lost to history but you, you know I had never heard of him before
0: I think he did a cover for one of the Editions of Native Son. Oh, really? Because I, I, I was looking, I was like, that looks really familiar, and yeah. I think that's where I saw it before. It's really good stuff. Yeah. So, Chuck, they, we've got the ten-point plan, uh, and the 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 original headquarters in oakland and all of a sudden the the panthers start spreading like wildfire like their ideas because the experience was so similar as far as poverty and being harassed and brutalized by police and just generally being held down by the white establishment since that experience was so similar throughout all the all the major cities and even smaller cities in the United States, uh, the Black Panther Party spread pretty quick. And eventually they had something like 5,000 members. And remember, that doesn't sound that much, like that many people. But like you said, to be a member, you were committed to the Black Panther Party 24-7. You had to quit your job, you had to quit school, and your, your life was the Black Panther Party. Yeah. So the fact that they had five thousand people doing that around the country is pretty nuts. But they have many, many more supporters. And the Black Panther newspaper eventually grew to a circulation of about two hundred and fifty thousand. It's amazing. It really is. And um well I guess we'll we'll get back to their history after this. <laughs> Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24 7 virtual care.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. Hey everyone, Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more it lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you homes.com we've done your homework all right so uh, if you want to start if you want to start anything that you want to grow and be noticed, then, and it sounds kind of silly to talk about, but you need to be good at branding. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And uh, I don't know that they specifically thought about it as branding initially, but they quickly realized that the media really ate this stuff up when these black men in in leather, black leather car coats and black turtlenecks and black berets donning shotguns uh, with the you know the ammunition draped around their shoulder, <laughs> uh, the, the press ate it up. It was it was a cool look, and young black men wanted to look like this. Mm-hmm. Um, black women started growing out their afros. It, it was all kind of sort of tied into the black is beautiful movement, um, which was sort of just the notion of em- embrace your blackness. Don't try to fit in and look. You know, don't straighten your hair. Don't try and look like uh white people, like, mm-hmm. wear your dashi- dashiki, uh, grow your afro out, be proud of who you are as a black person, embrace your roots, and the Black Panther Party was really tied into this, and it became a, a really big part of their branding and recruitment.
0: Yeah. If you were hip at this time, like, you were definitely hip to the Black Panther look. Even if you hadn't adopted it yourself, you were like, there's a cool cat yeah. walking down the street with a bandolier, of bullets, and a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, the, the, the Panthers, they had the look, they had the offices now, they had the newspaper. And one of the first things they started doing, uh, even before they really started to spread, but those first Panther members, um, Huey Newton, uh, Bobby Seale, and then a, a guy named um, Bobby Hutton was their first recruit. Um, one of the first things they started doing was patrolling the neighborhoods of Oakland and looking for police who had stopped um, black motorists, right? Yeah.
1: It was almost like a, a a guardian angels that protected citizens from cops. Right, exactly.
0: That's a really good way to put it, right? So they would stand
1: there um
0: at a uh, reasonable distance and just openly and, and obviously observe the traffic stop. Yeah. And they would shout, you know, at the cop anytime he started to violate the civil rights of the of the black driver. Um and they were armed. They were holding shotguns, oftentimes not necessarily pointed at the cops. But in that um, in that documentary we mentioned, they would talk about how, like, the they would kind of bring it, it's move it from side to side, right? It's kind of shifting position, and as it did, it slowly was aimed for a moment at the cop, and the cop got the point. Like, yeah, I get it. You have a loaded shotgun, and it's right there, and you you could shoot me. And some of the first, um, some of the first traffic stop monitoring that happened just scared the bejesus out of the cops. They they had never experienced anything like this before. All of a sudden there were a group of young black men standing there in black berets and shades at night holding shotguns trained on them from time to time and um the cops actually responded in exactly the way the black panthers did they they were much more hesitant to um brutalize or violate the civil rights of the drivers and a lot of times they just get in their cars and leave especially if they were on patrol alone yeah so that was one of the huge early foundational hallmarks of of um the black panther party that they were uh, openly and armedly protecting their um, fellow blacks from police brutality that was that was one of their major roles
1: yeah and uh the reason that they were allowed to have these guns is because uh one of their one of their leaders eldridge cleaver um found in the california uh, law books that i mean they call it a loophole but it wasn't really a loophole it's kind of right there in black and white is you are allowed to carry a gun in public, on public property, as long as it's not concealed. Right, open carry law. And so they were like, all right, well, we have these guns. It says right here we're allowed to. They would carry a gun in one hand a lot of times, and then this California legal handbook in the other, and they knew it by heart. They could quote exactly the code. uh, And then, you know, obviously the cops caught on. The word got around what was going on. And it, it, it developed all the way to the California General Assembly, and when you see this documentary, it's it's amazing, man. These these bla- the Black Panther Party marches through the building onto the floor of the California General Assembly wielding shotguns, mm-hmm. loaded shotguns. And, you, you know, you see all the, all the obviously the white legislature just sitting there like what in the world is going on, including Ronald Reagan. Well, yeah, he was the governor.
0: Right. And so Ronald Reagan was the governor at the time, and he is in that documentary quoted as saying, like, anybody who thinks, you know, carrying open loaded guns in public is okay is out of his mind. And ultimately signed a uh, anti-open carry law that closed that loophole. Yeah, the Malford Act. Right. So Reagan signed some... um, gun control legislation, big gun control legislation, in an effort to curb those patrols by the Black Panthers.
1: Yeah, and so obviously you hear, all right, Ronald Reagan does this. You think, where's the NRA? And so I looked up. I was like, all right, what was just the climate at the time? Apparently in the late 60s, the NRA, it it wasn't until the late 70s, 1977, when a guy named Harlan Carter took over the NRA Mm -hmm. is when they really stepped it up with the uh, Second Amendment rights, yeah, like they were the just really the- more strict version of the Second Amendment. Right. And uh, so the NRA was silent, and obviously Reagan, being very tough on guns, he had a, uh, I guess you could call it a conversion, in the 1980s as well, uh, and then he and the NRA teamed up together and started saying things like, well, no, it's it's okay. You can totally have guns. Right. This also
0: happened to coincide with the breakup of the Black Panther Party. Yeah. When the, when the NRA and Reagan changed their stance on gun rights. Yes. Um, w- one thing you said was that it was Eldridge Cleaver who w- noticed the loophole. It was Huey Newton. He was the one oh, was who, who who like really had that mind for law. Eldridge Cleaver was much more the militant revolutionary. Yeah. And he was already a bit of a, a darling in the intellectual circles for a book of essays he'd written in prison called Soul on Ice. Yeah. And so he joined the Black Panther Party pretty early on as their minister of information, in in large part their official spokesman. Um, And he brought an air of real credibility and legitimacy and got a lot of um, left-leaning intellectuals and – you know, entertainment types like Brando was a big one who was in favor of the party and supporter. Yeah, but they they really started to pay attention to the Black Panthers when Eldridge Cleaver joined.
1: Yeah, and his wife uh, Kathleen Cleaver was also one of the. Uh, well, we might as well go ahead and talk about women in the Black Panther Party. Yeah. Uh, you know, like most organizations at the time, though it was um, it was sort of from the top down down a male driven organization, Mm -hmm. and uh, they did have Kathleen Cleaver, and they had Elaine Brown, who was also sort of one of the higher ups, but it was still, and even they admitted, it was still somewhat of a chauvinistic organization, and most of the women were, uh, didn't make it past what they called the rank and file, um, sort of operating the nuts and bolts, secretarial secretarial work, and um, just kind of making the thing go. So it was, you know, on one hand, they did give women some positions of power, but never kind of at the top.
0: Well, no, there were, I mean, like you said, you named two of the big big um, exceptions to that rule but they were big exceptions like uh, um, Kathleen Cleaver was the first woman who was a member of the decision-making body and Elaine Brown took over as chair party chair like the the top official after Huey Newton um, split for Cuba in 1973 but like you said most of the women in the Black Panther Party were rank-and-file but it doesn't mean that gender roles were totally rigid In the party. Like, for example, you would just as often or frequently see women out armed doing um, patrols of the neighborhood. Yeah. While men were the ones responsible for some of the um, survival programs, the community programs that
1: we'll talk about. Yeah. Well, Brown said they tried that and had minor successes. Oh, is that right? Yeah, in the documentary, she said that was sort of what she tried to do is reverse some of the roles, mm-hmm. and she said that was still kind of largely a sexist attitude, and which was a problem within the organization, because you can't be that true community organization if you have that oppression going on within your own group of, well, in a gender sense.
0: Yeah, and especially if you know, women are the ones who are doing a lot of the actual work. like Something like 50 to 70 percent of Panther membership was female.
1: Yeah, at one point.
0: So, yeah, you got to respect the people who are actually doing the work or else you've got an arrogance problem at the top.
1: Yeah, and we should mention, too, that Kathleen Cleaver is a professor right here in Atlanta at our own Emory University. Yeah. What, law professor? Yeah. Yeah, she went on to get a law degree from Yale and uh, after years of living in exile, which we'll get to. Mm -hmm. All right, so you mentioned the survival programs, and... um, if you don't know what that is, you might be saying like, what in the world is Josh talking about? (laughs) (laughs) They had their police brutality program. So that's kind of what made the news was patrolling the streets with these guns, keeping the cops in check. And, by the way, we should mention that they're the ones who came up with the term pigs as a derogatory term for police officers.
0: Yeah, from their it first appeared in their newspaper and it caught on pretty quick.
1: Yeah. So that was that was kind of what they made the news for at first, but um I think especially Huey Newton realized early on that they can make a real difference in the community if they get these social programs going that you know, they're not being taken care of, their schools are bad, these kids don't have access to like good food even. And they they read that you know, science scientifically speaking, that a good breakfast is has a big impact on how a child learns throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So they started this breakfast program uh, where they would give. I mean, I think at one point they were feeding like twenty thousand children free breakfasts around the country. Yeah, t- every day. Every day. Every morning.
0: Twenty thousand children around the country who otherwise would have gone to school hungry and stayed hungry the whole day ate breakfast because the Black Panther Party fed them every day, every school day around the country.
1: That's insane. Yeah, they started uh, medical clinics, free clinics called the People's Free Medical Center. Uh, They offered vaccines, testing for diseases, uh, treated basic illnesses, cancer screenings, basically these social services that white America fully enjoyed. Or I should say white America of a certain class fully enjoyed Mm -hmm. and um, started offering up these programs, which kind of became one of the hallmarks of the party. Yeah. Uh, They weren't just this militant group trying to, you know, keep cops in check any longer.
0: No, no. Then that was a huge, huge. um, I mean, that was as big, if not bigger than their, their militant objectives is. Serving the community through these survival programs, too, right? absolutely, and they funded these programs largely through donations um which they would go out and solicit from the community around the cities, right, yeah, and apparently, if you at least didn't give something if you were like, "No, I'm not giving you a dime, the panthers would um would out you in their newspaper and call for a boycott of your business that you you know saying like you're these guys." care so little that they won't even chip in a dollar for kids to have a free breakfast. Yeah. Um, So they, they had like a real, uh, they had a a pretty serious organization going by this time that was directed again, not just at patrolling police and fighting police brutality, but also at serving the community.
1: Yeah. One of the cool uh, things they did was they started (laughs) the Oakland community school. Yeah. That was Elaine Brown. Yeah. And it was kind of her passion project and it was, it was pretty much free to students, and they had, um, they had small classes, they taught poetry, they taught foreign language uh, and current events, they taught yoga, like all these things that the black community had never, you know, had access to. Uh, black history is obviously a big part of it. They had uh, Maya Angelou and Rosa Parks and mm-hmm. other civil rights leaders come in and speak at the school, and it operated for nine, nine years, from 73 to 82. And uh, Kathleen Cleaver has this one great story that she told on CNN about... Uh, one young man who came to join the party because you know he wanted to get a gun and be on the patrol. They handed him a stack of books, and he looked at him and said, "I thought you were going to army." And they said back to him, "I just did. Pretty good." Yeah, she dropped the
0: mic right after that. <laughs> yeah,
1: she absolutely did.
0: But that, I mean, that directly relates to um, I think point number five on the ten-point agenda, where it says that they want education for people that. um that teaches them about themselves, that gives them a knowledge of self. It said that um, if a man doesn't have knowledge of himself and his position in society and the world, then he has little chance to relate to anything else, Yeah, which is exceptionally true. Yeah. So you've got all these programs. I think they had like 65 programs, what they called survival programs in, in place. Um, and it wasn't until apparently these programs... Uh, were starting to really roll and get the attention of and support of a lot of people outside of the communities even that the FBI uh, led by J. Edgar Hoover gave its full attention to the Black Panthers and they set about trying to destroy uh, the Black Panther Party.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, Hoover, ironically, these social programs are what scared him the most mm-hmm. because he knew that that's how you're going to get white liberals on board on this cause. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened. Uh, I mean, like you said, they weren't... They didn't shun the help of the white man by any means. They, like, went arm-in-arm with these uh, white lefties. Uh, Basically, you watch the documentaries, it looks like today. They're, you know, these college dudes with beards. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They look like modern hipsters. Yeah. And uh, worked arm-in-arm. And at one point, they even got together... Who was the Appalachian group? The Young Patriots. Yeah, it's just, like... You see this video of these black militants, like, giving handshakes and hugs to these Appalachian, white Appalachian, I mean, rural white people who all seem like they were like, we have the same problems, and if we can just get together— and it was just crazy, especially in today's climate, all these years later, to see that happening back then.
0: Yeah. They, I mean, they, they were in favor of anybody, regardless, as long as they, they shared, you know, kind of the same sentiments or the same struggle. Um, in 1970, Huey Newton became the first black leader to ever publicly support uh, gays and lesbians. Yeah. That was a huge deal, too.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the point was, like, you know, the the problem wasn't race. The problem was this class struggle. And, you know, everybody of a certain socioeconomic status or who was a worker was being held back, you know. So um, you were saying Hoover was worried about those social programs. Yes. Um, There's a quote from a letter that he wrote to an FBI agent who objected to targeting the survival programs as part of uh, COINTELPRO. Pro. Yeah. Hoover said, you state the Bureau should not interfere in programs such as the Breakfast for Children, because many prominent humanitarians, both white and black, are interested in the program, as well as churches which are actively supporting it. You obviously have missed the point. And his point was that you don't leave those programs alone because they have support outside of the community. You target them because they have support outside of the community. That that was the real threat. Way more than black men patrolling the streets with shotguns. That was a problem for local law enforcement and the FBI was worried about it. But more to the point, they saw that as such a, a, a flashpoint, a potential flashpoint that they could get the police to shoot and kill armed black men on the street with with impunity, Yeah, they could, that they could deal with. That is what they understood was meeting violence with violence. What they didn't know how to deal with, aside from completely subverting it and sabotaging it, was generating goodwill throughout the community through these social programs. So right. that was the real threat to Hoover in his eyes.
1: Amazing. So at this point... Um, the party at the top had gotten a little. Uh, the foundation had gotten a little loose um, due to a, a couple of things. Going back in time a little bit, a few years before, um, Huey Newton was arrested and convicted of killing a police officer. Which um, it, it, on one hand, it sort of um, removed one of the one of the pieces of the foundation, uh, which made it a little bit weaker at the top. On the other hand, it really got people around this free Huey. Newton campaign
0: yeah that was Cleaver's phrase
1: yeah free Huey yeah and uh, again the white liberals got on board and it kind of swept the nation that basically Huey Newton was involved in a shootout with the cops and was they thought wrongfully imprisoned and kind of railroaded through the system Mm -hmm. and um, so in one sense it sort of galvanized the movement in another anytime one of the leaders is is operating out of jail then that's that's not good. And he wasn't the only one. Um, actually, I think all three of the original, Bobby Seal was in and out of jail a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And I think by this point, too, Cleaver had fled the country to avoid jail mm-hmm. and ended up in Algeria.
0: He did. So back in 1968, um, as part of a patrol, Cleaver and uh, Bobby Hutton, who was the first Recruit of the Black Panthers, and by this time was the uh, treasurer of the yeah. Oakland chapter. Um they were part of a patrol that ended up um, w- was pulled over by two cops. And those two cops ended up dead. And everybody in the car fled. And um, Hutton and Cleaver fled to a basement where they got in a shootout for 90 minutes with police. And the police threw in tear gas. And um, the tear gas, I guess, exploded and caught the basement on fire. Yeah. So um, Eldridge Cleaver and uh, Bobby Hutton decided that they were going to surrender. So they came out with their hands up, unarmed, unarmed. And the cops surrounded him and shot Hutton in the head, just executed him right there on the sidewalk. Yeah. And Cleaver um, was taken to jail. He made bail. And right when he made bail, he's like, see ya.
1: Yeah, he split.
0: He went to Cuba because Fidel Castro was a, a longtime and big supporter of the Black Panther Party. Sure, There's apparently still one of them, um, uh, Amada Shakur, I believe. Who is living still in exile in Cuba today? Um, who's a Black Panther? Uh, but Eldridge Cleaver, I guess, didn't like the climate. Ended up uh, with Kathleen Cleaver in Algeria and formed the uh, the international chapter of the Black Panther Party. And that's where they would receive dignitaries from, like the North Vietnamese government, right. or from Cuba, or any kind of left leaning revolutionary group would come meet them there. And that was enormous because all like basically no other black. Liberation or black rights movement group had genuine legitimate international support the Black Panthers did and in the eyes of the world that boosted their credibility just through the roof.
1: Oh, yeah. All right. So there's a bit of a uh, I don't want to say power vacuum, but slight leadership vacuum because of the the various uh, top original founders being away from Oakland, either in jail or Algeria or in and out of jail. And uh, it, it could have potentially been filled by a young man out of Chicago named Fred Hampton. And we will get back to Fred's story right after this.
0: Listen to this. It's a game changer. Amazon is now in healthcare. Yes, Amazon. It's called Amazon One Medical. They offer same day appointments, and if that's not convenient enough for you, they also have 24 7 virtual care.
1: Again, this is a game changer. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful. All right, so Fred Hampton, um by all accounts from this documentary and my research, seemed like he could have been the Bobby Kennedy of the Black Panther Party well put he was uh vivacious, he was a great speaker he was uh you know he would he would give these speeches and uh just galvanize people. He had a great personality and um he was really getting kind of the movement back on track again in a big big way uh when he was pretty much i'm not even gonna say pretty much when he was uh politically assassinated by the fbi and chicago police department
0: yeah he was executed for sure um so what was it 1969
1: Yeah, December 4th is when the the raid went down.
0: So at something like 4 a.m., sometime in the wee hours, the cops kicked in the door of Fred Hampton's house, or the house where he was staying, and um, 90 bullets, I think, I saw 90, I also saw 100, 90 bullets were shot, fired from the Chicago Police Department, and one bullet was shot by the Black Panthers, and that bullet was shot when the bodyguard... To Fred Hampton, his name was Mark Clark, was shot and killed, and dropped the shotgun he was holding, and it went off.
1: Yeah, Um, and we should mention too, this was uh, one of many, many what they called raids Um, after Hoover issued that edict that they were the the largest, uh, and I'm sure there was an internal memo as well, which we don't know about. But when he issued that edict that they were the most threatening group to the United States uh, democracy, mm-hmm. it was pretty much open season, and they carried out these raids all over the country where essentially cops would just kick in doors, uh, guns blazing, yep. uh, shoot first, ask don't even ask questions.
0: Yeah, but this one was a little more, even even worse. It was even more pronounced because... Well, this was targeted. This Yes, exactly, and it was targeted specifically for Fred Hampton, and it kind of falls in line with this part of COINTELPRO uh, or Cointel pro this uh, one of the the foundations of Cointel pro was that it it sought to prevent the rise of a black messiah that could um consolidate
1: yeah the masses and that was fred hampton
0: right well he definitely fell in that so was mlk so was malcolm x right basically any black leader that was assassinated definitely fell within that so and fred hampton did as well for sure so he was assassinated um not by the FBI, but by the Chicago PD. But the Chicago PD were able to carry out a targeted raid because the FBI had supplied them with a map drawn by one of their informants of the apartment Fred Hampton was staying in.
1: Yeah, and it was under the guise of they have a a stash of guns in there, which they did have a stash of guns and ammunition in there, and that was the excuse they used to go in and shoot him in bed while he slept.
0: Yeah, and if you are questioning whether this was actually an attempt on Fred Fred Hampton's life, those 90 bullets that were fired, most of them went into Fred Hampton. Uh, and three people who were sleeping in the same bed as Hampton, where he was shot and killed, um, were not hit by bullets at all.
1: Yeah, including his eight-and-a-half-month pregnant girlfriend. Yeah. Who they grabbed by the hair and threw into the other room, uh, tore her robe open, <clears throat> and... Um, you know, the story of the cops was was they knocked on the door, were denied entry. Uh, then they opened the door, and there was a woman aiming a shotgun at them. Um, later on, ballistics tests, they did everything and basically figured out that was 100% sham. All the bullets were, were found ballistically to have gone into the apartment, none going out of the apartment through the walls. And, you know, in this documentary, they interview a few of the people that were in there, and they were just like... It was mass murder. Mm-hmm. They basically just came in and shot the place up. Uh, they, they examined the angle of the wound that showed that Hampton was lying on his back in bed uh, from somebody standing above him. And in 1970, a coroner's jury ruled the deaths uh, justifiable. Uh, everyone got away with it, but the city eventually and the federal judge approved a $1.85 million settlement. But that wasn't until the 90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 13 years later.
0: But the uh, FBI, uh, apparently the agent who was handling the informant who produced the map was so pleased with the results that after the after the raid that resulted in Hampton's execution, um, he, I guess, mailed J. Edgar Hoover for, with a request for an extra $300 because he wanted to give the informant a bonus.
1: Yeah. One of the bigger black eyes... On American history for sure
0: one of the other black guys on the Chicago PD uh, at this time was the w- one of these raids was on the breakfast for children program yeah where the supplies for breakfast were burned like the place was set on fire by the cops yeah so I mean the Black Panthers are at like open war oh, yeah. with with the FBI and with the police department to the late 60s were
1: crazy you know,
0: Yeah, in large part because of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, there was another big shootout, and this is all sort of coming to a head. If it feels that way, that's exactly what's going on. Um, in 1969, there was another big shootout, and this was major. And I think it was in Los Angeles, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah, it was. It was the first time a SWAT team was ever used. Yeah, they employed the SWAT team, which was invented by the LAPD. And uh, 200 L.A. police and uh, I think it was like six or eight... Black Panther Party members were involved in a full on you know hour long gun battle mm-hmm. uh, just right there in the streets, so uh, things are coming to a head the uh sort of the secret plan here by Hoover is working, which is he wants to fracture the party from within mm-hmm. and sow seeds of discontent and discord, so they had been through the years planting informants uh in the Black panther party uh in the party and They knew it. The Black Panthers did. So a lot of distrust, you know, when you know, like, who can you trust? A lot of this this distrust happens even among, you know, the higher-ups that were formerly like a pretty strong union. Right. And that happened for sure with the case of uh, Eldridge Cleaver and Huey Newton. Uh, When Huey Newton got out of jail, he was eventually freed, and uh, it was a big deal, and they thought this was going to be sort of the, the rebirth of the Black Panther Party. Uh, in the wake of uh, the death of Fred Hampton. But he came out of jail, and he and Cleaver sort of had different... uh, They always sort of had different priorities, but they managed to come together. But they were truly fractured at this point.
0: Yeah, they were. Um, Newton and Cleaver were, like, openly criticizing one another, uh, with Cleaver still in exile. But Cleaver had the entire New York chapter dedicated to him. Uh, And years prior, the... Black Panthers had formed what was called the Black Liberation Army. Yeah. But it was a army of defense until 1971 um, when I believe he was still in absentia but uh, L- Eldridge Cleaver said, hey, we're going to take this from defensive to Offensive and basically create a new terrorist group out of the black liberation army and they started a campaign of violence against um, Cops where they would ambush cops and just kill them. There wasn't any Retaliation for police brutality. Yeah, um, there, it wasn't self-defense like they were ambushing and killing cops and it happened in cities around the country and The fracture between the Black Panthers itself was so deep that cleaver's faction and newton's faction were were assassinating one another they yeah. were taking out each other's people um so it was a big deal and the black liberation army officially split from the black panthers in 1971
1: yeah and of course at this point herbert Hoover's sitting back in his chair like choking on a cigar from yeah. laughter right because this is exactly what he wanted yep was this infighting and um <clears throat> So Newton gets out of jail, he's uh he's trying to get the social programs going again, but he also is uh becomes addicted to drugs and by all accounts is sort of losing his mind and has become power hungry and um has sort of lost the original calling that he had and has gotten sort of drunk with power and was not functioning mentally like he should have been due to the drugs. Right? So right. it was it was his big Sort of the big beginning of the flame out, for, yeah, him, for himself and the party,
0: yeah, for sure his his downfall definitely it didn't exactly mirror the party, but you know it, it it was a herald of one you know one of the founders was totally losing his his marbles, yeah, because he was addicted to heroin and cocaine, you know, and he actually had a very sad end uh he died during a drug deal on the street in nineteen eighty nine in yeah. Oakland. Um, but he said that he was committing revolutionary suicide by being addicted to drugs and basically killing himself that way. Yeah. Um. Some of the other ones had not quite as tragic, but strange ends, like Eldridge Cleaver, right? Yeah. When he returned from Algeria with Kathleen Cleaver, um, he became—I think both of them might have become born-again Christians—and um, Eldridge Cleaver eventually became a, a registered Republican. Yeah. I did not see that coming.
1: I did not either, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't.
0: Right. And then, you know, I mentioned that internal violence with one another, right? Yeah. There was a big turning point um, as far as public sympathy went um, in 1969. I think maybe, yeah, 1969, there was a guy named Alex Rackley who was a member of the New York uh, chapter, and he was suspected to be an FBI informant and it's still after all these years oh, right. never come to light whether he was or not but the Panthers had the idea that he was so they took him to the New Haven chapter where he was tortured they tied him up to a bed and poured boiling water on his body for days yeah and then eventually uh, i guess he confessed uh, although, if you ever listen to our torture episode, right, false confession, torture, yeah, you you can get a false confession pretty easy if you torture somebody. Um, they took him out to the woods and shot him in the head and chest and and left him. And when he when his body was discovered, Bobby Seal had been in New Haven speaking at Yale, like just hours before the guy was killed. So he got charged with the murder. And this is one of the founders of the Black Panther Party on trial for murder. Yeah. And during this trial, um, which he was acquitted, but he the a lot of the infighting came out and it, it, the Panthers had managed to keep it out of the public eye and under wraps for for, you know, up to this point. Now it came out in the trial. So people realized that there was a lot of um, schisms and fractures within the leadership itself. They lost a lot of public sympathy when they found out that they would carry out, you know, extrajudicial justice uh, on their own members. Yeah. Um, And it it just it was a it was a big thing. It was a big turning point for the party as far as the public was concerned.
1: Yeah. and, And like I said, there were sort of the two factions with with Cleaver and Newton. Some people went with Cleaver. Some people went with Newton. A lot of people left the Black Panther Party period at this point because they d- either didn't know who to give their allegiance to or they just felt betrayed by this fracture mm-hmm. and the party wasn't what they thought it was. So the numbers are declining. It's it's definitely in sort of free fall at this point. And uh, Bobby Seale decides, here's what we need to do. We need to close down as many chapters as we can and and pool the resources and the money and bring everyone out here to Oakland, because I'm going to run for mayor. And we need to go all in on this legit push for political candidacy, because I think I can win. So they literally called up people on the East Coast and the Baltimore office and New York offices and said, shut them down, come out here to California. And we need to go all in on not only running for mayor, but on a massive voter registration campaign Mm -hmm. to register, you know, people in, in urban communities to vote. So I think in the end they got like 50,000 new people registered to vote, and out of eight or nine candidates, he finished close enough in second to get a a runoff. He got like 40% of the vote. Yeah, but ultimately lost in a runoff, in a narrow uh, runoff, and did not win, um, which sort of was one of the final nails in the coffin for the party because they had committed so many resources Mm -hmm. to try and get behind Bobby Seale's run for mayor. And he, incidentally, still lives in the Bay Area and is very much still uh, an activist. Yeah. Bobby Seale is. Yeah, he was also... Did
0: you ever see that um, documentary on the Chicago 8? It was, like, animated? No. I wanted oh, it was to. Really, it's very good. Yeah. But he was one of the Chicago 8. And Seale, he actually went to prison. This was before his mayoral run. Um, but he did, like, f- four years, or at least was sentenced to four years, strictly for... Um, Contempt of court because he he um rejected that he was getting a fair trial because I don't think there was a single black person on the jury um and he rejected that he was being tried by a jury of his peers, and he kept um protesting in the middle of court, and eventually at one point the judge had him gagged, but he got like four years for that
1: yeah, gagged as in literally chained to his seat with tape over his mouth, yes, and uh you know. That, that set off uh, all sorts of protests in the streets. People wanted that judge removed. I thought that was that not during the Panther 21 trial? Was that the other one, Chicago no, 8? No, that was the Chicago 8 trial. Oh, okay.
0: Um, and that was, that was a different trial also where, um, did you ever hear the urban legend that Hillary Clinton got Bobby Seale out of, out of, off of murder charges? Yes. That, was, that came out of that Alex Rackley trial where he was on trial for murder, and he, he was acquitted. Um, and Hillary Rodham Clinton was nowhere near the actual trial as his attorney. She apparently um, was a law student at Yale still and was coordinating with the ACLU to monitor the trial. Uh, so she she was there, but apparently had nothing to do with
1: the defense. Gotcha.
0: But that was a an urban legend that came out of the 2000 senatorial campaign.
1: Well, the Panther 21, I mentioned um, just quickly, that was uh, in New York. The New York chapter, 21 leaders of the Black Panther Party were rounded up and arrested on conspiracy charges, and this was a really big deal because the New York chapter was uh, one of the biggest ones in the country after Oakland, and people got involved and tried to raise money like celebrities got involved and and donated money, and at one point, I don't know if it still is, but it was the longest criminal proceeding in New York state history, uh, it was a 13-month trial by jury, and they were all found not guilty and released. So uh, that All of them were found not guilty, huh? Yeah, the Panther 21. Wow. Uh, and that's, you know, jumping back in time a little bit. <clears throat> I just wanted to mention that. So
0: there's a distinct legacy beyond just the look or the image or black power. And black power, we should also say, um, I think it was Stokely Carmichael who either coined that phrase or at least was the first to really kind of pick it up and run with it. Um, and Stokely Carmichael and his non- nonviolent student coordinating committee, they got together with the Black Panthers early on. But if you, I mean, just in the popular culture, the Black Panthers live on, but they, there's even more of a legacy as well. Um, before he died, Eldridge Cleaver gave an interview, I think back in 1997. And he said that um, he basically blamed the gang violence that plagued inner cities in the 80s. He traced that directly to the death of the Black Panthers. Oh, wow. He said that, uh, as it was, the U.S. government chopped off the head of the Black Liberation Movement and left the body there armed. That's why all these young bloods are out there now. They've got the rhetoric, but are without the political direction, and they've got the guns. Interesting. So he, he basically traces that directly to the Black Panthers being taken down. Huh. Yeah. You got anything well, else? Actually, I do. So we were talking about how, you know, there, there's a legacy. There's not just a legacy of the Black Panthers. There's a legacy of um, uh, brutality against black people that, that apparently is at least as bad, if not worse, Today than it has been, Chuck. Yeah. So the um, Tuskegee University in Alabama has uh, records of all the lynchings that took place in in the Jim Crow era, 1890 to 1965. And 2,911 black Americans were lynched during those years. And the worst year of the Jim Crow era was 1892, and 161 people were lynched. In 2015... 258 black people were killed by police in the United States. So n- n- not a lot's changed, and it's possible that it's gotten worse. Yeah, But if you look to the Black Lives Matter movement, they have um, chosen the way of King uh, in, in preaching nonviolent rhetoric for social change rather than the um, Black Panther rhetoric of militancy yeah. and violent self-defense.
1: Yeah, I think a bit of the Black Panther Party spirit, though, is alive in the Black Lives Matter movement, for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, that's all I've got. That's all
1: I've got. Good one.
0: Yeah, I thought so, too, man.
1: Um, Did you you ever see the movie? Oh, the one with, like, Mario Van Peebles? Yeah, he made it. He he wasn't in it, I don't think.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, No, I didn't.
1: I heard it was not good.
0: Yeah, I want to see Malcolm X. I've never seen that one.
1: Ooh, that's great. Is it? Yeah, yeah, Spike Lee's movie. Sure. Yeah, really good.
0: Okay, I'll check that out.
1: Yeah, the um <clears throat> the Panther movie was uh. I just read a few reviews today, and apparently the the setup is pretty good with some of the history, but then it kind of goes off the rails. Oh, okay. As, and, and like, and not just goes off the rails like bad movie, but bad movie and not historically accurate or but, honoring.
0: Like the, they the keep subject
1: matter. Dance scenes keep breaking out. <laughs> uh. But I do think that I was like, man, why hasn't there been a movie made about Fred Hampton?
0: Yeah, he sounds like he was a a pretty inspiring figure.
1: Yeah, seeing some of those speeches, like he, he had it going on. He said his one big quote was, uh, we're not going to fight fire with fire, we're going to fight fire with water. Nice. I thought that was a good one. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. That's Black Messiah talk right there. Exactly.
0: If you want to know more about the Black Panthers, there's a bunch of stuff you can do. You can go on to the site at HowStuffWorks.com and search those terms. You can go watch Black Panthers' Vanguard of a Revolution. You can watch Black Power mixtape that has a lot to
1: do with the Black Panthers. I haven't seen it yet, though, have you? No, you can go to Emory University, I bet, and get in touch with Kathleen Cleaver and maybe offer to buy her coffee.
0: Yep, there's uh, some, just a lot of really good articles out there uh, that just search Black Panthers and it'll. there's a lot of eye-opening history that you didn't learn in school. Uh, and since I said you didn't learn in school, it's time for Listener Mail.
1: Uh, I'm going to call this Addendum to Rubber Trade. From the Elastics episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey guys, just listened to the one on Elastics. It was fun and informative, uh, as usual, but I wanted to call attention to a small, important omission. You were discussing the rubber trade in Latin America, and you only mentioned Brazil. Although it was indeed the largest exporter of rubber in the area, the Amazon basin and the Putumayo River Valley region in Peru and Colombia were also important sites for the production of rubber trees. Uh, sadly, when you combine global demand with a natural product, the result is usually some form of exploitation. In the case of rubber, it came to a horrible extreme with the Peruvian Amazon Rubber Company, or as it was known in Spanish, the Casa Arana, named for Julio Cesar Arana, a Peruvian businessman that set up shop in the region, enslaved, tortured, and mutilated indigenous populations to the brink of extinction in the pursuit of rubber. Uh, His crimes were documented and made public in 1913, but his business and atrocities only stopped when rubber production moved to Asia and he couldn't compete. Uh, This whole rubber bonanza is chronicled in the excellent Colombian novel The Whirlwind by J.E. Rivera. Uh, Today, the offices of the company, the Casa Arana, or Arana House, are being converted into a historic site where members of local tribes can gather and remember those atrocities in their own way, telling their own stories in their own words. Uh, This is one of those poorly documented, poorly discussed examples of genocide as a result of trade. Uh, At least in Colombia, every kind of economic bonanza is somehow tied to one massacre or another. So that's the downer I wanted to share. Nice. Who was that? Best from Bogota, Santiago. Santiago is
0: the person who wrote it in? Yes. Thanks a lot for writing that, Santiago. We appreciate it.
1: Yep, that's a good one.
0: Man, this has been like an eye-opening history lesson through and through, huh? Absolutely. Uh, if you want to give us an eye-opening history lesson, we'd love those. So get in touch with us. You can tweet to us at Josh Um Clark and at SYSK Podcast. You can uh, hang out with us on Facebook at Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, com. Stuff You Should Know is a
1: production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey friends, when someone says Amazon, do you think healthcare? Well, maybe you should. Amazon One Medical offers same-day appointments, and if somehow that's still not convenient enough, they have 24-7 virtual care. Not only that, there's also Amazon Pharmacy, so after your virtual care appointment, Amazon will deliver your prescriptions directly to your door. No waiting in line with people who are sick with who knows what. It's a new era of healthcare. Thanks to Amazon Pharmacy and Amazon One Medical, healthcare just got less painful.